CD8. Back in Ankh-Morpork, Mr. Cleet was astonished. But we hired you, he said. The term is retained, not hired, said Lord Downey, head of the Assassin's Guild. He looked at Cleet with an expression of unconcealed distaste. Unfortunately, however, we can no longer entertain your contract. They're musicians, said Mr. Cleet. How hard can they be to kill? My associates are somewhat reluctant to talk about it said Lord Downey. They seem to feel that the clients are protected in some way. Obviously, we will return the balance of your fee. Protected, muttered Cleet, as they stepped thankfully through the archway of the Assassin's Guild. Well, I, 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 I told you what it was like in, in, in the drum when Satchelmouth began. That's just superstition, snapped Cleet. He glanced up at a wall where three festival posters flaunted their primary colours. It was stupid of you to think assassins would be any good outside the city, muttered Cleet. Me? I, 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 I never... Get them more than five miles from a decent tailor and a mirror, and they all go to pieces, Cleet added. He stared at the poster. Free, he muttered. Did you put it about that anyone who plays at this festival is right out of the guild? Uh, uh, yes, sir. I, I, I don't think they're, they're, they're worrying, sir. I mean, some of them have been uh, getting together. Sir, see, they say since there's a lot more people want to be musicians than than uh, we'll allow in, in in the guild, then we should. It's mob rule," said Cleet, banding together to force unacceptable rules on a defenceless city. Uh, uh, trouble is, sir," said Satchelmouth, "if there's a, a lot of them, if they think of talking uh, uh, to the palace, well, <laughs> you, you you know the patrician, sir." Cleet nodded glumly. Any guild was powerful just so long as it self-evidently spoke for its constituency. He thought of hundreds of musicians flocking to the palace, hundreds of non-guild musicians. The patrician was a pragmatist. He never tried to fix things that worked. Things that didn't work, however, got broken. The only glimmer of hope was that they'd all be too busy messing around with music to think about the bigger picture. It had certainly worked for Cleet. Then he remembered that the blasted Dibbler man was involved. Expecting Dibbler not to think about anything concerning money was like expecting rocks not to think about gravity. Hello? Uh, Albert? Susan pushed open the kitchen door. The huge room was empty. Albert! She tried upstairs. There was her own room, and there was a corridor of doors that didn't open and possibly never could. The doors and frames had an all-in-one moulded-together look. Presumably Death had a bedroom, although proverbially Death never slept. Perhaps he just lay in bed reading. She tried the handles until she found one that turned. Death did have a bedroom. He'd got many of the details right, of course. After all, he saw quite a lot of bedrooms. In the middle of the acres of floor was a large four-poster bed, although when Susan gave it an experimental prod it turned out that the sheets were as solid as rock. There was a full-length mirror and a wardrobe. She had a look inside just in case there was a selection of robes, but there was nothing in there except a few old shoes in the bottom. Old shoes always turn up in the bottom of every wardrobe. If a mermaid had a wardrobe, old shoes would turn up in the bottom of it. A dressing table held a jug and basin set with a motif of skulls and omegas and a variety of bottles and other items. She picked them up one by one. Aftershave lotion, pomade, breath freshener, a pair of silver-backed hairbrushes. It was all rather sad. Death clearly had picked up an idea of what a gentleman should have on his dressing room table without confronting one or two fundamental questions. Eventually, she found a smaller, narrower staircase. Albert? There was a door at the top. Albert? Anyone? It's not actually barging in if I call out first, she told herself. She pushed open the door. It was a very small room, really small. It contained a few sticks of bedroom furniture and a small, narrow bed. A small bookcase contained a handful of small, uninteresting-looking books. There was a piece of ancient paper on the floor, which, when Susan picked it up, turned out to be covered with numbers, all crossed out except the last one, which was 19. One of the books was Gardening in Difficult Conditions. She went back down to the study. She'd known that there was no one in the house. There was a dead feeling in the air. There was the same feeling in the gardens. Death could create most things, except for plumbing, 
but he couldn't create life itself. That had to be added like yeast in bread. Without it, everything was beautifully neat and tidy and boring, boring, boring. This is what it must have been like, she thought, and then one day he adopted my mother. He was curious. She took the path through to the orchard again, and when I was born, Mum and Dad were so afraid that I felt at home here, they brought me up to be, well, a Susan. What kind of name is that for Death's granddaughter? A girl like that should have better cheekbones, straight hair, and a name with V's and X's in it. And there, once again, was the thing he'd made for her, all by himself, working it all out from first principles. A swing. A simple swing. It was already burning hot in the desert between Clatch and Hershiber. The air shimmied, and then there was a pop. Albert appeared on a sand dune. There was a clay-brick fort on the horizon. The Clatchian Foreign Legion, he muttered, as sand began its inexorable progress into his boots. Albert trudged towards it, with the death of rats sitting on his shoulder. He knocked on the door, which had a number of arrows in it. After a while, a small hatch slid back. "'What do you want, Effendi?' said a voice from somewhere behind it. Albert held up a card. "'Have you seen someone who didn't look like this?' he demanded. There was a silence. "'Then, let's say, have you seen some mysterious stranger who didn't talk about his past?' said Albert. Uh, "'This is the Clatchin Foreign Legion of Hendy. Uh, "'People don't talk about their past. "'They, they, they join up to... Uh, to, to, um, to uh... "'It dawned on Albert, as the pause lengthened, "'that it was up to him to get the conversation going again. Uh, "'Forget? Uh, yeah, right, right, forget, yes. "'So have you had any recent recruits who were a little, shall we say, odd?' Mm, might have done, said the voice slowly. Uh, I can't remember. The hatchway slammed shut. Albert hammered on it again. The hatchway opened. Yes, what is it? Are you sure you can't remember? Uh, remember what? Albert took a deep breath. I demand to see your commanding officer. The hatch shut. The hatch opened. Um, it, uh, sorry, it appears that, that, that I am the commanding officer. You're not a, a dreg or a Hershebian, are you? Don't you know? I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I must have done once. <laughs> you know how it is. Head like a, head like a, a um, uh, uh, thing, uh, you know, uh, with holes in. You, you drain lettuce in it. Um, oh. There was the sound of bolts being pulled back and a wicket door opened in the gateway. The possible officer was a sergeant, insofar as Albert was at all familiar with Clatchy and ranks. He had the look about him of someone who, among the things he couldn't remember, would include a good night's sleep, if he could remember to. There were a few other Clatchian soldiers inside the fort, sitting or just barely standing. Many were bandaged, and there was a rather greater number of soldiers slumped or lying on the packed sand, who'd never need a night's sleep ever again. "'What's been happening here?' said Albert. His tone was so authoritative that the sergeant found himself saluting. "'We were attacked by the dregs, sir,' he said, swaying slightly. Hundreds of them. They outnumbered us, sir. Uh, uh, um, what's the number after nine? Got a, a, a one in it. Ten. Ten to one, sir.' "'I see you survived, though,' said Albert. "'Ah,' said the sergeant. "'Yes.' Uh, uh, yes, that's where it all gets a bit complicated, in fact. Um, Corporal, that's you. No, you just necked him. Uh, the, the one... <coughs> the one with the two stripes. Me, said a small fat soldier. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, tell him what happened. Oh, uh, uh, right. Uh, well, the bastards had shot us full of arrows, right? And it looked like it was all up with us. Then someone suggested sticking bodies up on the battlements with their spears and crossbows and everything so the bastards would think we were still up to strength. It's not an original idea, mind you, said the sergeant. It's been done dozens of times. Yeah, said the corporal awkwardly. 
That's what they must have thought. And then, and then, when they was galloping down the sand dunes, when they was almost on us, laughing and everything, saying stuff like, <laughs> that old trick again, someone shouted, fire! And they did! The dead men? I joined the Legion to, uh, um, to, uh, you know, the, uh, that, uh, uh, with your mind, with your mind, the corporal began. Forget, said Albert. That's right, forget. And I've been getting good at it. But I'm not going to forget my old mate Nudger Malik stuck full of arrows and still giving the enemy what for, said the corporal. Not for a long time. Uh, I'm going to give it a try, mind you. Albert looked up at the battlements. They were empty. Someone formed them up in formation and they all marched out afterwards, said the corporal. And I went out to look just now and there was just graves and they must have dug them for one another. Tell me, said Albert, who is this someone to whom you keep referring? The soldiers looked at one another. We, we've just been talking about that, said the sergeant. We've been trying to remember. He, he was in... Uh, the pit, when it started. Tall, was he? said Albert. Could have been tall, eh? <laughs> Could have been tall, nodded the corporal. He, he had a tall voice, certainly. He looked puzzled at the words coming out of his own mouth. What did he look like? Well, he, he had a, 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 with a, he was a, um, well, more or less. He, did he look loud and deep? said Albert. The corporal grinned with relief. That's him, he said. Private, um, Private uh, Bo, uh, can't quite remember his name. I know that when he walked out of the, the, uh, the sergeant began and began to snap his fingers irritably. The thing you open and shut, it made of wood, hinges and bolts on it. Uh, thank you. Gate. That's right. Gate. When he went out of the gate, he said, um, what was it he said, corporal? He said, every last detail, sir. Albert looked around the fort. So, he's gone. Who? The man you were just telling me about. Oh, oh, yes. Uh, have you any idea who he was, Offendi? I mean, it was amazing. Talk about morale. Esprit de corps, said Albert, who could be nasty at times. I suppose he didn't say where he was going next. Where, who was going next? said the sergeant, wrinkling his forehead in honest inquiry. Forget I asked, said Albert. He took a last look round the little fort. It probably didn't matter much in the history of the world whether it survived or not, whether the dotted line on the map went one way or the other, just like the master, to tinker with things. Sometimes he tries to be human too, he thought, and he makes a pig's ear out of it. Carry on, sergeant, he said, and wandered back into the desert. The legionnaires watched him disappear over the dunes, and then got on with the job of tidying up the fort. Who do you think he was? Who? The person you just mentioned. Did I? Did you what? Albert crested a dune. From here the dotted line was just visible, winding treacherously across the sand. Squeak! You and me both, said Albert. He removed an extremely grubby handkerchief from a pocket, knotted it in all four corners and put it on his head. Right, he said, but there was a trace of uncertainty in his voice. Seems to me we're not going to be logical about this. Squeak? I mean, we could be chasing him all over the place. Squeak? So maybe we ought to think about this. Squeak? Now... If you were on the disc, definitely feeling a bit strange, and could go absolutely anywhere, anywhere at all, where would you go? Squeak? Anywhere at all, but somewhere where no one remembers your name. The death of rats looked around at the endless, featureless, and above all dry desert. Squeak. Hmm, you know, I think you're right. It was in an apple tree. He built me a swing, Susan remembered. She sat and stared at the thing. It was quite complicated. Insofar as the thinking behind it could be inferred from the resulting construction, it had run like this. Clearly, a swing should be hung from the stoutest branch. 
In fact, safety being paramount, it would be better to hang it from the two stoutest branches, one to each rope. They had turned out to be on opposite sides of the tree. Never go back. That was part of the logic. Always press on, step by logical step. So he'd removed about six feet from the middle of the tree's trunk, thus allowing the swing to, well, swing. The tree hadn't died. It was still quite healthy. However, the lack of a major section of trunk had presented a fresh problem. This had been overcome by the addition of two large props under the branches, a little further out from the ropes of the swing, keeping the whole top of the tree at about the right height off the ground. She remembered how she'd laughed even then, and he'd stood there quite unable to see what was wrong. And then she saw it all, all laid out. That was how death worked. He never understood exactly what he was doing. He'd do something, and it would turn out wrong. Her mother... Suddenly he had a grown woman on his hands and didn't know what to do next, so he did something else to make it right, which made it more wrong. Her father, Death's apprentice. And when that went wrong, and its potential wrongness was built right into it, he did something else to make it right. He turned over the hourglass. After that, it was all a matter of maths, and the duty. Hello! Uh, Hells, Glod, tell me where we are. Hello, Stolat! Yay! It was an even bigger audience. There'd been more time for the posters to be up, more time for the word of mouth from Ark Morpork. And the band realised a solid core of people had followed them from Pseudopolis. In the brief break between numbers, just before the bit where people started leaping around on the furniture, Cliff leaned over to Glod. You see that troll in the front row? he said. The one Ashfelt's jumping on the fingers of? The one that looks like a spoil heap. She was in Pseudopolis, said Cliff, beaming. She keeps looking at me. Go for it, lad, said Glod, emptying the spit from his horn. In like flint, eh? You think she's one of them gropies Ashfelt told us about? Could be. Other news had travelled fast, too. Dawn saw another redecorated hotel room, a royal proclamation from Queen Kay Lee that the band was to be out of the city in one hour on pain of pain, and one more rapid exit. Buddy lay in the cart as it bumped over the cobbles towards Quirm. She hadn't been there. He'd scanned the audience on both nights, and she hadn't been there. He'd even got up in the middle of the night and walked through the empty streets in case she was looking for him. Now he wondered if she existed. If it came to that, he was only half certain that he existed, except for the times when he was on stage. He half listened to the conversation from the others. Ashfelt? Yes, Mr. Glod? Clifford B. can't help noticing something. Yes, Mr. Glod? You've been carrying a heavy leather bag around, Ashfelt. Yes, Mr. Glod? It uh, was a bit heavier this morning, I think. Yes, Mr. Glod? He's got the money in it, yes? Yes, Mr. Glod. How much? Uh, Mr. Dibbler said I wasn't to worry you with muddy stuff, said Ashfeld. We don't mind, said Cliff. That's right, said Glod. We, we want to worry. Ah, uh, Ashfeld licked his lips. There was something deliberate in Cliff's manner. About two thousand dollars, Mr. Glod. The cart bounced on for a while. The landscape had changed a little. There were hills and the farms were smaller. Two thousand dollars, said Glod. Two thousand dollars. Two thousand dollars. Two thousand dollars. Why do you keep saying two thousand dollars, said Cliff? I've never had a chance to say two thousand dollars. Just don't say it so loud. Two thousand dollars! Shh, said Ashfeld desperately, as Glod's shout echoed off the hills. This is bandit country. Glod eyed the satchel. You're telling me, he said. I don't mean Mr. Dibbler. We're on the road between Stolat and Quirm, said Glod patiently. This isn't the Rantops road, this is civilization. They don't rob you on the road in civilization. He glanced darkly at the satchel again. They wait until you've got into the cities. That's why it's called civilization. <laughs> Can you tell me the last time anyone was ever robbed on this road? Friday, I believe, said a voice from the rocks. Oh, bugger. The horses reared up and then galloped forward. Ashfelt's crack of the whip had been an almost instinctive reaction. 
They didn't slow down until they were several miles further along the road. Just shut up about the money, all right? hissed Ashfelt. I'm a professional musician, said Glod. Of course I think about the money. How far is it to Quirm? A lot less now, said Ashfelt. A couple of miles. And after the next hill, the city lay before them, nestling in its bay. There was a cluster of people at the town's gates, which were closed. Afternoon sunlight glittered off helmets. What you call them long sticks with axes on the end? said Ashfelt. Pikes, said Buddy. There's certainly a lot of them, said Glod. They can't be for us, can they? said Cliff. We're only musicians. And I can see so many long robes and gold chains and things, said Ashfelt. Burgers, said Glod. You know that horseman that passed us this morning, said Ashfelt. I'm thinking that maybe news travels. Yeah, but we didn't break up that theatre, said Cliff. Well, you only gave them six encores, said Ashfelt. We didn't do all that rioting on the streets. I'm sure the men with the pointy blades will understand that. Maybe they don't want their hotels redecorated. I said it was a mistake, orange curtains with yellow wallpaper. The cart came to a halt. A rotund man with a tricorn hat and a fur-trimmed cloak scowled uncomfortably at the band. Are you the musicians known as the band with Roxin? he said. What seems to be the problem, officer? said Ashfelt. I am the mayor of Quirm. According to the laws of Quirm, music with Roxin cannot be played in the city. Look, it says so right here. He flourished a scroll. Glod caught it. That ink looks wet to me, he said. Music with Roxine represents a public nuisance, is proven to be injurious to health and morals, and to cause unnatural gyrations of the body, said the man, pulling the scroll back. You mean we can't come into Quirm? said Glod. You can come in if you must, said the mayor, but you're not to play. Buddy stood up on the cart. But we've got to play, he said. The guitar swung around on its strap. He gripped the neck and raised his strumming hand threateningly. Glod looked around in desperation. Cliff and Ashfelt had put their hands over their ears. Ah, he said, I think what we have here is an occasion for uh, <laughs> negotiation. Yes, he got down from the cart. I expect what your worship hasn't heard of, he said, is the music tax. What music tax, said Ashfelt and the mayor together. Oh, it's the latest thing, said Glod. On account of the popularity of music with Roxin, music tax, 50 pence a ticket. Must have amounted to, oh, $250 in Stolat, I reckon. More than twice that in Ankh-Morpork, of course. Patrician thought it up. Really? Sounds like Vetinari right enough, said the mayor. He rubbed his chin. Did you say $250 in Stolat, really? Uh, that place is hardly any size. A watchman with a feather in his helmet saluted nervously. Excuse me, your worship, but the note from Stolat did say... Just a minute, said the mayor testily. I'm thinking. Cliff leaned down. This is bravery, is it? he whispered. This is taxation, said Glod. The watchman saluted again. But really, sir, the guards at Sto... Captain, snapped the mayor, still staring thoughtfully at Glod. This is politics. Please... As well, said Cliff. And to show goodwill, said Glod, it'd be a good idea if we paid the tax before the performance, don't you think? The mayor looked at them in astonishment. A man not certain he could get his mind around the idea of musicians with money. Your worship, the message said... Two hundred and fifty dollars, said Glod. Your worship! Now, Captain, said the mayor, apparently reaching a decision, we know that folk are a bit odd in Stolat. It's only music, after all. I said I thought it was an odd note. I can't see the harm in, in music. And these young men, people are clearly very successful, he added. This obviously carries a lot of weight with the mayor, as it does with many people. No one likes a poor thief. Yes, he went on. It'd be just like the lats to try that on us. They think we're simple, just because we live out here. Yes, but the pseudopolis... Oh, them stuck-up bunch. Nothing wrong with a bit of music, is there? Especially, the mayor eyed Glod, when it's for the civic good. <clears throat> Let him in, Captain.
Susan saddled up. She knew the place. She'd even seen it once. They'd put a new fence along the road now, but it was still dangerous. She knew the time, too. Just before they called it Dead Man's Curve. Hello, Querm! Buddy struck a chord. And a pose. A faint white glow like the glitter of cheap sequins outlined him. The cheering became the familiar wall of sound. I thought we were going to get killed by people who didn't like us, Glod thought. Now I think it's possible to be killed by people who love us. He looked around carefully. There were guards around the walls. The captain had been no fool. I just hope Ashfelt put the horse and cart outside like I asked him. He glanced at Buddy, sparkling in the limelight. A couple of encores and then down the back stairs and away, Glod thought. The big leather satchel had been chained to Cliff's leg. Anyone snatching it would find themselves towing one ton of drummer. I don't even know what we're going to play, thought Glod. I never do, I just blow and there it is. You can't tell me that's right. Buddy whirled his arm like a discus thrower and a cord sprang away and into the ears of the audience. Glod raised the horn to his lips. The sound that emerged was like burning black velvet in a windowless room. I'm going to die. That's part of the music. I'm going to die really soon. I can feel it. Every day it's getting closer. He glanced at Buddy again. The boy was scanning the audience as if he was looking for someone in the screaming throng. They played There's a Great Deal of Shaking Happening. They played Give Me That Music with Roxin. They played Pathway to Paradise. And a hundred people in the audience swore to buy a guitar in the morning. They played with heart and especially with soul. They got out after the ninth encore. The crowd was still stamping its feet for more as they climbed through the privy window and dropped into the alley. Ashfelt emptied a sack into the leather satchel. Another seven hundred dollars, he said, helping them onto the cart. Right, and we get ten dollars each, said Glod. You tell Mr. Dibbler, said Ashfelt, as the horse's hooves clattered towards the gates. I will. It doesn't matter, said Buddy. Sometimes you do it for the money, but sometimes you do it for the show. Mm, that'll be the day. Glod fumbled under the seat. Ashfelt had stashed two crates of beer there. There's the festival tomorrow, lads, rumbled Cliff. The gate arch passed above them. They could still hear the stamping from here. After that we'll have a new contract, said the dwarf, with lots of zeros in it. We got zeros now, said Cliff. Yeah, but they ain't got many numbers in front of them, hm, buddy? They looked around. Buddy was asleep. The guitar clutched to his chest. Out like a candle, said Glod. He turned back again. The road stretched ahead of them, pale in the starlight. You said you just wanted to work, said Cliff. You said you didn't want to be famous. How'd you like it, having to worry about all that gold and having girls throw their chain mail at you? I'd just have to put up with it. I'd like a quarry, said the troll. Yeah, yeah, heart-shaped. A dark, stormy night. A coach, horses gone, plunged through the rickety, useless fence and dropped tumbling into the gorge below. It didn't even strike an outcrop of rock before it hit the dried riverbed far below and erupted into fragments. Then the oil from the coach lamps ignited and there was a second explosion, out of which rolled, because there are certain conventions even in a tragedy, a burning wheel. What was strange to Susan was that she felt nothing. She could think sad thoughts, because in the circumstances they had to be sad. She knew who was in the coach, but it had already happened. There was nothing she could do to stop it, because if she'd stopped it, it wouldn't have happened. And she was here watching it happen. So she hadn't, so it had. She felt the logic of the situation dropping into place like a series of huge leaden slabs. Perhaps there was somewhere where it hadn't happened. Perhaps the coach had skidded the other way. Perhaps there had been a convenient rock. Perhaps it hadn't come this way at all. Perhaps the coachman had remembered about the sudden curve. But those possibilities could only exist if there was this one. This wasn't her knowledge. It flowed in from a mind far, far older. Sometimes the only thing you could do for people was to be there. She rode Binky into the shadows by the cliff road and waited. After a minute or two there was a clattering of stones and a horse and rider came up an almost vertical path from the riverbed. Binky's nostrils flared. Parapsychology has no word for the uneasy feeling you have when you're in the presence of yourself, although, strictly speaking, humans feel it all the time. 
Susan watched Death dismount and stand, looking down at the riverbed, leaning on his scythe. She thought, but he could have done something, couldn't he? The figure straightened, but did not turn round. Yes, I could have done something. How, how did you know I was here? Death waved a hand irritably. I remember you. And now understand this. Your parents knew things must happen. Everything must happen somewhere. Do you not think I spoke to them of this? But I cannot give life. I can only grant extension. Changelessness. Only humans can give life. And they wanted to be human, not immortal. If it helps you, they died instantly. Instantly. I've got to ask, Susan thought. I've got to say it, or I'm not human. I could go back and save them. Only the faintest tremor suggested that the statement was a question. Save? For what? A life that has run out? Some things end. I know this. Sometimes I have thought otherwise, but without duty, what am I? There has to be a law. He climbed into the saddle and, still without turning to face her, spurred Binky out and over the gorge. There was a haystack behind a livery stable in Phaedra Road. It bulged for a moment and there was a muffled swearing. A fraction of a second later there was a bout of coughing and another much better swear word inside a grain silo down near the cattle market. Very shortly after that, some rotten floorboards in an old feed store in Short Street exploded upwards, followed by a swear word that bounced off a flour sack. Idiot rodent, bellowed Albert, fingering grain out of his ear. Squeak! I should think so. What size do you think I am? Albert brushed hay and flour off his coat and walked over to the window. Ah, he said, let us repair to the mended drum then. In Albert's pocket, sand resumed its interrupted journey from future to past. Hibiscus Dunelm had decided to close up for an hour. It was a simple process. First he and his staff collected any unbroken mugs and glasses. This didn't take long. Then there was a desultory search for any weapons with a high resale value, and a quick search of any pockets whose owners were unable to object on account of being drunk, dead, or both. Then the furniture was moved aside, and everything else was swept out of the back door and into the broad brown bosom of the River Ark, where it piled up and by degrees sank. Finally, Hibiscus locked and bolted the big front door. It wouldn't shut. He looked down. A boot was wedged in it. We're shut, he said. No, you ain't. The door ground back, and Albert was inside. Have you seen this person? he demanded, thrusting a pasteboard oblong in front of Dunelm's eyes. This was a gross breach of etiquette. Dunelm wasn't in the kind of job where you survived if you told people you'd seen people. Dunelm could serve drinks all night without seeing anyone. Never seen him before in my life, he said automatically, without even looking at the card. You've got to help me, said Albert, otherwise something dreadful will happen. Push off. Albert kicked the door shut behind him. Just don't say I didn't warn you, he said. On his shoulder, the death of rats sniffed the air suspiciously. A moment later, Hibiscus was having his chin pressed firmly into the boards of one of his tables. Now, I know he'd come in here, said Albert, who wasn't even breathing heavily, because everyone does, sooner or later. Have another look. That's a Carrock card, said Hibiscus indistinctly. That's death. That's right. He's the one on the white horse. You can't miss him. Only he wouldn't look like that in here, I expect. Let me get this straight, said the landlord, trying desperately to wriggle out of the iron grip. You want me to tell you if I've seen someone who doesn't look like that? He'd have been odd. Odder than most. Albert thought for a moment. And he'd have drunk a lot, if I know him. He always does. This is Ark Moorpork, you know. Don't be cheeky or I'll get angry. You mean you're not angry now? I'm just impatient. You can try for angry if you like. There was someone a few days ago. Can't remember exactly what he looked like. Ah, oh, that'd be him. Drank me dry, complained about the barbarian invaders game, got legless and then... What? Can't recall. We just threw him out. Out the back door? Yes, 
but that's just river out there. Well, most people come round before the sink. Squeak, said the death of rats. Did he say anything? said Albert, too busy to pay attention. Something about remembering everything, I think. He said, he said being drunk didn't make him forget. He kept going on about doorknobs and hairy sunlight. Hairy sunlight? Something like that. And the pressure on Hibiscus's arm was suddenly released. He waited a second or two and then very cautiously turned his head. There was no one behind him. Very carefully, Hibiscus bent down to look under the tables. Albert stepped out into the dawn and, after some fumbling, produced his box. He opened it and glanced at his lifetimer, then snapped the lid shut. All right, he said. What next? Squeak. What? And someone hit him across the head. It wasn't a killing stroke. Timo Laziman of the Thieves' Guild knew what happened to thieves who killed people. The Assassin's Guild came and talked briefly to them. In fact, all they said was, goodbye. All he'd wanted to do was knock the old man out so that he could rifle his pockets. He'd not expected the sound as the body hit the ground. It was like the tinkle of broken glass, but with unpleasant overtones that carried on echoing into Timo's ears long after they should have stopped. Something leapt from the body and whirred into his face. Two skeletal claws grabbed his ears and a bony muzzle jerked forward and hit him hard on the forehead. He screamed and ran for it. The death of rats dropped to the ground again and scurried back to Albert. It patted his face, kicked him frantically a few times, and then in desperation bit him on the nose. Then it grabbed Albert's collar and tried to pull him out of the gutter, but there was a warning tinkle of glass. The eye sockets turned madly towards the drum's closed front door. Ossified whiskers bristled. A moment later, Hibiscus opened the door, if only to stop the thunderous knocking. I said we... Something shot between his legs paused momentarily to bite him on the ankle, and scuttled towards the back door, nose pressed firmly to the floor. It was called Hyde Park, not because people could, but because a hide was once a measure of land capable of being ploughed by one man with three and a half oxen on a wet Thursday, and the park was exactly this amount of land, and people in Arkmorepork stick to tradition, and often to other things as well and it had trees and grass and a lake with actual fish in it. And by one of those twists of civic history, it was a fairly safe place. People seldom got mugged in Hyde Park. Muggers like somewhere safe to sunbathe, just like everyone else. It was, as it were, neutral territory. And it was already filling up, even though there was nothing much to see except the workmen still hammering together a large stage by the lake. An area behind it had been walled off with strips of cheap sacking nailed to stakes. Occasionally excited people would try to get in and would be thrown into the lake by Chrysoprase's trolls. Among the practising musicians, Crash and his group were immediately noticeable, partly because Crash had his shirt off so that Jimbo could paint iodine on the wounds. "'I thought you were joking,' he growled. "'I, I did say it was in your bedroom,' said Scum. "'How am I going to play my guitar like this?' said Crash. "'You can't play your guitar anyway,' said Noddy. I mean, look at my hand. Look at it. They looked at his hand. Jimbo's mum had put a glove on it after treating the wounds. They hadn't been very deep, because even a stupid leopard won't hang around anyone who wants to take his trousers off. A glove, said Crash in a terrible voice. Who ever heard of a serious musician with a glove? How could I ever play my guitar with a glove on? How could you ever play your guitar anyway? I don't know why I put up with you three, said Crash. You're you're cramping my artistic development. I'm thinking of leaving and forming my own band. No, you won't, said Jimbo, because you won't find anyone even worse than us. Let's face it, we're rubbish. He was voicing a hitherto unspoken yet shared thought. The other musicians around them were, it was true, quite bad, but that's all they were. Some of them had some minor musical talent. As for the rest, they merely couldn't play. They didn't have a drummer who missed the drums, and a bass guitarist with the same natural rhythm as a traffic accident. And they generally settled on their name. They might be unimaginative names, like A Big Troll and Some Other Trolls, or Dwarfs with Altitude, but at least they knew who they were. How about We're a Rubbish Band, said Noddy, sticking his hands in his pockets. We may be rubbish, snarled Crash, but we're music with rocks in rubbish. Well, 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 and how's it all going then, 
said Dibbler, pushing his way through the sacking. It won't be long now. What are you doing here? We're in the programme, Mr Dibbler, said Crash meekly. How can you be in the programme when I don't know what you're called? said Dibbler, waving a hand irritably at one of the posters. Your name up there, is it? We're probably where it says Ants Supporting Bands, said Noddy. What happened to your hand? said Dibbler. My trousers bit it, said Crash, glowering at Scum. Honest, Mr Dibbler, can't you give us one more chance? We'll see, said Dibbler, and strode away. He was feeling too cheerful to argue much. The sausages in a bun were selling very fast, but they were just covering minor expenses. There were ways of making money out of music with Roxin that he'd never thought of, and C.M.O.T. Dibbler thought of money all the time. For example, there were the shirts. They were of cotton so cheap and thin that it was practically invisible in a good light and tended to dissolve in the wash. He'd sold six hundred already, at five dollars each. All he had to do was buy them a ten for a dollar from Clatchy and Wholesale Trading and pay Chalky half a dollar each to print them. And Chalky, with untroll-like initiative, had even printed off his own shirts. They said, Chalky's twelve, the scourers, things done. And people were buying them, paying money to advertise Chalky's workshop. Dibbler had never dreamed that the world could work like this. It was like watching sheep shear themselves. Whatever was causing this reversal of the laws of commercial practice, he wanted in big lumps. He'd already sold the idea to Plugger the shoemaker in New Cobblers. Pluggers, they've got soles, feel the nails. And a hundred shirts had just walked out of the shop, which was more than Plugger's merchandise usually did. People wanted clothes just because they had writing on. He was making money, thousands of dollars in a day and a hundred music traps were lined up in front of the stage, ready to capture Buddy's voice. If it went on at this rate, in several billion years, he'd be rich beyond his wildest dreams. Long live music with Roxin. There was only one small cloud in this silver lining. The festival was due to start at noon. Dibbler had planned to put on a lot of the small bad groups first, that is to say, all of them, and finish with the band. So there was no reason to worry if they weren't here right now. But they weren't here right now. Dibbler was worried. A tiny dark figure courted the shores of the Ark, moving so fast as to be a blur. It zigzagged desperately back and forth, snuffling. People didn't see it, but they saw the rats, black, brown and grey. They were leaving the go-downs and wharfs by the river, running over one another's backs in a determined attempt to get as far away as possible. A haystack heaved and gave birth to a glod. He rolled out onto the ground and groaned. Fine rain was drifting over the landscape. Then he staggered upright, looked around at the rolling fields and disappeared behind a hedge for the moment. He trotted back a few seconds later, explored the haystack for a while until he found a part that was lumpier than normal and kicked it repeatedly with his metal-topped boot. Oh! Sea flat, said glod. Good morning, Cliff. Hello, world. I don't think I can stand life in the fast ley line, you know, the cabbages, the bad beer, all those rats pestering you all the time. Cliff crawled out. I must have had some bad ammonium chloride last night, he said. Is the top of my head still on? Yes, pity. They hauled Ashfelt out by his boots and brought him round by pounding him repeatedly. You are our road manager, said Glod. You're supposed to see no harm comes to us. Well, I'm doing that, ain't I? Ashfelt muttered. I'm not hitting you, Mr. Glod. Where's Buddy? The three circled the haystack, prodding at bulges which turned out to be damp hay. They found him on a small rise in the ground, not very far away. A few holly bushes grew there, carved into curves by the wind. He was sitting under one, guitar on his knees, rain plastering his hair to his face. He was asleep and soaking wet. On his lap, the guitar played raindrops. He's weird, said Ashfelt. No, said Glod, he's wound up by some strange compulsion which leads him through dark pathways. Yeah, weird. The rain was slackening off. Cliff glanced at the sky. Sun's hay, he said. Oh, no, said Ashfelt. How long were you asleep? Same as I am awake, said Cliff. It's almost noon. 
Where did I leave the horses? Has anyone seen the cart? Someone wake him up. A few minutes later, they were back on the road. And you know what, said Cliff, we left so quick last night, I never did know if she turned up. What was her name, said Glod. Dunno, said the troll. Oh, that's real love, that is, said Glod. Ain't you got any romance in your soul, said Cliff. Eyes crossed in a crowded room, said Glod. Nah, not really. They were pushed aside as Buddy leaned forward. Shut up, he said. The voice was low and contained no trace whatsoever of humour. We were only joking, said Glod. Don't! Ashfelt concentrated on the road, aware of the general lack of amiability. I expect you're looking forward to the festival, eh? he said, after a while. No one replied. I expect there'll be big crowds, he said. There was a silence except for the clatter of the hooves and the rattle of the cart. They were in the hills now, where the road wound alongside a gorge. There wasn't even a river down there, except in the wettest season. It was a gloomy area. Ashfelt felt that it was getting gloomier. I expect you'll really have fun, he said eventually. Ashfelt, said Glod. Yes, Mr. Glod? Wash the road, will you? The Arch-Chancellor polished his staff as he walked along. It was a particularly good one, six feet long and quite magical. Not that he used magic very much. In his experience, anything that couldn't be disposed of with a couple of whacks from six feet of oak was probably immune to magic as well. Don't you think we should have brought the senior wizard, sir? said Ponder, struggling to keep up. I'm afraid that taking them along in their present frame of mind would only make um, whatever happens, Ridcully sought for a useful phrase and settled for, happen worse. I've insisted they stay in college. How about Drongo and the others? said Ponder, hopefully. Would they be any good in the event of a thaumaturgical dimension rip of enormous proportions? said Ridcully. I remember poor old Mr. Hong. One minute he was, he was dishing up an order of double cod and mushy peas, and the next... Kaboom, said Ponder. Kaboom, said Ridcully, forcing his way up the crowded street. Not that I heard tell. More like, scream, gristle, 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 crack, and a shower of fried food. Big mad Adrian and his friends any good when the chips are down? Um, probably not, Arch-Chancellor. Correct. People shout and run about. That never did any good. A pocket full of decent spells and a well-charged staff will get you out of trouble nine times out of, out of ten. Nine times out of ten? Correct. How many times have you had to rely on them, sir? Well, there was... There was Mr. Hong, um, that business with the, the thing in the bursar's wardrobe, that uh, dragon, you remember? Ridcully's lips moved silently as he counted on his fingers. Nine times so far. And it worked every time, sir? Absolutely. So, there's no need to worry. Gangway! Wizard coming through! The city gates were open. Glod leaned forward as the cart rumbled in. Don't go straight to the park, he said. But we're late, said Ashfeld. This won't take long. Go to the Street of Cunning Artificers first. That's right on the other side of the river. It's important. We've got to pick up something. People flocked the streets. This wasn't unusual, except that this time most of them were moving the same way. And you get down in the back of the cart, said Glod to Buddy. We don't want young women trying to rip your clothes off. Eh, Buddy? He turned. Buddy had gone to sleep again. Speaking uh, for myself, Cliff began. You've only got a loincloth, said Glod. Well, they, they could grab it, couldn't they? The cart threaded its way through the streets until it turned into cunning artificers. It was a street of tiny shops. In this street you could have anything made, repaired, crafted, rebuilt, copied or forged. Furnaces glowed in every doorway, smelters smoked in every backyard, makers of intricate clockwork eggs worked alongside armourers, carpenters worked next door to men who carved ivory into tiny shapes so delicate that they used grasshoppers' legs cast in bronze for saws. At least one in every four craftsmen was making tools to be used by the other three. Shops didn't just abut, they overlapped. If a carpenter had a big table to make, he relied on the good will of his neighbours to make space so that he'd be working on one end of it while two jewellers and a potter were using the other end as a bench. 
There were shops where you could drop in to be measured in the morning and pick up a complete suit of chainmail with an extra pair of pants in the afternoon. The cart stopped outside one small shop, and Glod leapt down and went inside. Ashfelt heard the conversation. Have you done it? Here you are, mister. Right as rain. Will it play? You know I said where you have to have spent a fortnight wrapped in a bullock hide behind a waterfall before you should touch one of these things. Listen, mister, for this kind of money, it had me in the shower for five minutes with a chamois leather on my head. Don't tell me that's not good enough for folk music. There was a pleasant sound which hung in the air for a moment before being lost in the busy din of the street. We said twenty dollars, right? No, you said twenty dollars, I said twenty-five dollars. Mm, just a minute then. Glod came out and nodded at Cliff. All right, he said, cough up. Cliff growled but fumbled for a moment somewhere at the back of his mouth. They heard the cunning artificer say, What the hell's that? A molar? Got to be worth at least. It'll do. Glod came out again with a sack which he tucked under the seat. Okay, he said, head for the park. They went in through one of the back gates, or at least tried to. Two trolls barred their way. They had the glossy marble patina of Chrysoprase's basic gang thugs. He didn't have henchmen. Most trolls weren't clever enough to hench. This is for the bands, one said. That's right, said the other one. We are the band, said Ashfeld. Which one, said the first troll. I got a list here. That's right. We're the band with Roxin, said Glod. Eh, you ain't them. I've seen them. There's a guy with this glow round him, and when he plays the guitar it goes... That's right. The cord curled around the cart. Buddy was standing up, guitar at the ready. Oh, wow, said the first troll. This are amazing. He fumbled in his loincloth and produced a dog-eared piece of paper. You couldn't write your name down, could you? My boy Clay, he won't believe I met. Yes, yes, said Buddy wearily. Pass it up. Only it's not for me. It's for my boy Clay, said the troll, jumping from one foot to the other in excitement. How do you spell it? It don't matter. He can't read anyway. Listen, said Glod, as the cart trundled into the backstage area. Someone's already playing. I said we... Dibbler hurried up. What kept you, he said. You'll be on soon, right after Boys from the Wood. How did it go? Ashfelt, come here. He pulled a small troll into the shadows at the back of the stage. You brought me some money, he said. About three thousand. Not so loud. I'm only whispering it, Mr Dibbler. Dibbler looked around carefully. There was no such thing as a whisper in Ark Morpork when the sum involved had the word thousand in it somewhere. People could hear you think that kind of money in Ark Morpork. You be sure and keep an eye on it, right? There's going to be more before this day's out. I'll give Chryso praises seven hundred dollars and the rest is all pro... He caught Ashfelt's little beady eye and remembered himself. Of course, there's a depreciation overhead, some de de advertising market research buns, mustard, basically. I'll be lucky if I break even. I'm practically cutting me own throat on this deal. Yes, Mr Dibbler. Ashfelt peered around the edge of the stage. Who's that playing now, Mr Dibbler? And you. Sorry, Mr Dibbler. Only they write it. And you, said Dibbler. He relaxed a little and pulled out a cigar. Don't ask me why. The right kind of name for a musician ought to be something like Blondie and his merry troubadours. Are they any good? Don't you know, Mr Dibbler? It's not what I call music, said Dibbler. When I was a lad, we had proper music with real words. Summer is a-coming in, newly sing cuckoo. That sort of thing. Ashfelt looked at And You again. Well, it's got a beat and you can dance to it, he said, but they're not very good. I mean, people are just watching them. They don't just watch when the band are playing, Mr Dibbler. You're right, said Dibbler. He looked at the front of the stage. In between the candles was a row of music traps. You'd better go and tell them to get ready. I think this lot are running out of ideas. Um, buddy? He looked up from his guitar. Some of the other musicians were tuning theirs, but he'd found he never had to. He couldn't, anyway. The pegs didn't move. What is it? Um, said Glod. 
He waved vaguely at Cliff, who grinned sheepishly and produced the sack from behind his back. This is... Uh, well, we thought that is all of us, said Glod. That, well, we saw it, you see, and I know you said it couldn't be repaired, but there's people in this city uh, that can do just about anything. So we asked around, and we knew how much it meant to you, and there's this man in the street of cunning artificers, and he said he thought he could do it, and it cost Cliff another tooth, but... Here you are, anyway, because you're right. We're on top of the music business right enough, and it's because of you, and we know how much this meant to you, so it's a sort of thank-you present. Well, well, go on, then. Give it to him. Cliff, who lowered his arm again as the sentence began to extend, pushed the sack towards the puzzled buddy. Ashfelt poked his head through the sacking. We guys better get on the stage, he said. Come on. Buddy put down the guitar. He opened the sack and began to pull at the linen wrappings inside. "'It's been tuned up and everything,' said Cliff helpfully. The harp gleamed in the sun as the last wrapping came off. "'They can do amazing things with glue and stuff,' said Glod. "'I mean, I know you said there wasn't anyone left in Clamedos that could repair it, but this is Ark Morpork. We can fix nearly everything.' "'Please,' said Ashfelt, as his head reappeared. "'Mr Dibbler says you've got to come. They've started to throw things.' I don't know much about strings, said Glod, but I had a go. Sounds kind of nice. I, uh, I don't know what to say, said Buddy. The chanting was like a hammer. I won this, said Buddy, in a small, distant world of his own, with a song, Sioni Bodda, it was. I worked on it all winter, all about home, you know, and going away, see, and trees and things. The judges were very pleased. They said that in fifty years I might really understand music. He pulled the harp towards him. Dibbler pushed his way through the rabble of musicians backstage until he found Ashfeld. Well, he said, where are they? They're just sitting around talking, Mr Dibbler. Listen, said Dibbler, you hear the crowd? It's music with rocks in they want. If they don't get it, well, they'd just better get it, all right? Letting the anticipation build up is all very well, but I want them on stage right now. Buddy stared at his fingers. Then he looked up white-faced at the other bands milling around. You, with the guitar, he said hoarsely. Me, sir? Give it to me. Every nascent rock group in Ankh Morpork was in awe of the band with rocks in. The guitarist handed his instrument over with the expression of one passing over a holy item to be blessed. Buddy stared at it. It was one of Mr. Weedown's best. He struck a chord. The sound sounded like lead would sound if you could make guitar strings out of it. OK, boys, what's the problem? said Dibbler, hurrying towards them. There's six thousand years out there waiting to be filled up with music and you're still sitting around. Buddy handed the guitar back to the musician and swung his own instrument around on its strap. He played a few notes that seemed to twinkle in the air. But I can play this, he said. Oh, yes. Right, good. Now, get up there and play it, said Dibbler. Someone else give me a guitar. Musicians fell over themselves to hand them to him. He strummed frantically at a couple, but the notes weren't simply flat. Flat would have been an improvement. The Musicians Guild contingent had managed to secure an area close to the stage by the simple expedient of hitting any encroachers very hard. Mr. Cleet scowled at the stage. I don't understand it, he said. It's rubbish. It's all the same. It's just noise. What's so good about it? Satchelmouth, who had twice had to stop himself tapping his feet, said, We haven't had the main band yet. Uh, are, 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 are you sure you want to... We're within our rights, said Cleet. He looked around at the shouting people. There's a hot dog seller over there. Anyone else fancy a hot dog? Hot dog? The guild men nodded. Hot dog? Right. That's three hot dog. The audience cheered. It wasn't the way that an audience normally applauds, with its starting at one point and rippling outwards, but all at once, every single mouth opening at the same time. Cliff had knuckled onto the stage. He sat down behind his rocks and looked desperately back towards the wings. Glod trailed on, blinking in the lights. And that seemed to be it. The dwarf turned and said something, which was lost in the noise, and then stood looking awkward while the cheers gradually subsided. Buddy came on, staggering slightly as if he'd been pushed. 
Up until then, Mr. Cleet had thought that the crowd was yelling. And then he realised that it had been a mere murmur of approval compared to what was happening now. It went on and on while the boy stood there, head bowed. But he's not doing anything, Cleet shouted into Satchelmouth's ear. Why are they all cheering him for not doing anything? Uh, can't say, sir, said Satchelmouth. He looked around at the glistening, staring, hungry faces, feeling like an atheist who has wandered into Holy Communion. The applause went on. It redoubled again when Buddy slowly raised his hands to the guitar. He's not doing anything, screamed Cleet. He, he's, he's got us banged to rights, sir, Satchelmouth bellowed. He, he's not guilty of playing without belonging to the Guild if he doesn't play. Buddy looked up. He stared at the audience so intently that Cleet craned to see what it was that the wretched boy was staring at. It was nothing. There was a patch of it right in front of the stage. People were packed tight everywhere else, but there, right in front of the stage, was a little area of cleared grass. It seemed to rivet Buddy's attention. <whistles> Cleet rammed his hands over his ears, but the force of the cheering made his head echo. And then, very gradually, layer by layer, it died away. It yielded to the sound of thousands of people being very quiet, which was somehow, Satchelmouth thought, a lot more dangerous. Glod glanced at Cliff, who made a face. Buddy was still standing, staring at the audience. If he doesn't play, Glod thought, then we've had it. He hissed at Ashfeld, who sidled over. Is the cart ready? Yes, Mr. Glod. You filled up the horses with oats. Just like you said, Mr. Glod. OK. The silence was velvet and it had that quality of suction found in the patrician's study and in holy places and deep canyons, engendering in people a terrible desire to shout or sing or yell their name. It was a silence that demanded, fill me up. Somewhere in the darkness, someone coughed. Ashfelt heard his name hissed from the side of the stage. With extreme reluctance, he sidled over to the darkness where Dibbler was frantically beckoning him. You know that bag? said Dibbler. Yes, Mr. Dibbler, I put it... Dibbler held up two small but very heavy sacks. Tip these in and be ready to leave in a big hurry. Yes, that's right, Mr. Dibbler, because Glod said, Do it now. Glod looked around. If I throw away the horn and helmet and this chainmail shirt, he thought, I might just get out of here alive. What's he doing? Buddy put down the guitar and walked into the wings. He returned before the audience had realised what was happening. He was carrying the harp. He stood facing the audience. Glod, who was closest to him, heard him murmur, Just once, come on, just one more time, and then I'll do whatever you want. See, I'll pay for it. There were a few faint chords from the guitar. Buddy said, I mean it, see? There was another chord, just once. Buddy smiled at an empty space in the audience and began to play. Every note was as sharp as a bell and as simple as sunlight, so that in the prism of the brain it broke up and flashed into a million colours. Glod's mouth hung open, and then the music unfolded in his head. It wasn't music with rocks in, although it used the same doors. The fall of the notes conjured up memories of the mine where he'd been born, and dwarf bread just like Mum used to hammer out on her anvil, and the moment when he'd first realised that he'd fallen in love. He'd still got the nugget somewhere. He remembered life in the caves under Copperhead before the city had called him, and more than anything else he wanted to be home. He'd never realised that humans could sing whole. Cliff laid aside his hammers. The same notes crept into his corroded ears, but in his mind they became quarries and moorlands. He told himself, as emotion filled his head with its smoke, that right after this he was going to go back and see how his old mum was and never leave ever again. Mr. Dibbler found his own mind spawning strange and disturbing thoughts. They involved things you couldn't sell and shouldn't pay for. The lecturer in recent runes thumped the crystal ball. The sound is a bit tinny, he said. Get out of the way, I can't see, said the dean. Recent runes sat down again. They stared at the little image. This doesn't sound like music with rocks in, said the bursar. Shut up, said the dean. He blew his nose. It was sad music, but it waved the sadness like a battle flag. It said the universe had done all it could, but you were still alive. 
The dean, who was as impressionable as a dollop of warm wax, wondered if he could learn to play the harmonica. The last note faded. There was no applause. The audience sagged a little as each individual came down from whatever reflective corner they'd been occupying. One or two of them murmured things like, Yeah, that's how it is. Or, You and me both, brother. A lot of people blew their noses, sometimes on other people. And then reality snuck back, as it always does. Glod heard Buddy say very quietly, Thank you. The dwarf leaned sideways and said out of the corner of his mouth, What was that? Buddy seemed to shake himself awake. What? Oh, it's called Sioni Bodda. What do you think? It's got hole, said Glod. It's definitely got hole. Cliff nodded. When you're a long way from the old familiar mine or mountain, when you're lost among strangers, when you're just a great big aching nothingness inside, only then can you really sing whole. She's watching us, whispered Buddy. The invisible girl, said Glod, staring at the empty grass. Yes. Oh, yes. I can definitely not see her. Good. And now if you don't play music with Roxin this time, we're dead. Buddy picked up the guitar. The strings trembled under his fingers. He felt elated. He'd been allowed to play it in front of them. Everything else was unimportant now. Whatever happened next didn't matter. You ain't heard nothing yet, he said. He stamped his foot. One, two, one, two, three, four. Glod had time to recognise the tune before the music took him. He'd heard it only a few seconds before, but now it swung. Ponder peered into his box. I think we're trapping this, Arch-Chancellor, he said, but, but I don't know what it is. Ridcully nodded and scanned the audience. They were listening with their mouths open. The harp had scoured their souls, and now the guitar was hot-wiring their spines. And there was an empty patch near the stage. Ridcully put a hand over one eye and focused until the other eye watered. And then he smiled. He turned to look at the Musicians' Guild and saw to his horror that Satchelmouth was raising a crossbow. He seemed to be doing it with reluctance. Mr. Cleet was prodding him. Ridcully raised a finger and appeared to scratch his nose. Even above the sound of the playing, he heard the twang as the crossbow's string broke, and to his secret delight, a yelp from Mr. Cleet as a loose end caught his ear. He hadn't even thought of that. I'm just an old, old softy. That's my trouble, Ridcully said to himself. Het, 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 het. End of CD 8